This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I am Mark Gerson, the rabbi's husband, and here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Whitney, is it okay that I call you a fellow seeker of biblical truth? Uh, Yes, I think uh, defining biblical very broadly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, um, Whitney, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself, and perhaps in doing so, we'll give some background as to my seemingly strange question at the end there. Yes, well, uh, I'll say up front, I may be one of the more unusual guests you've probably ever had, because uh, I'm not Jewish, and I'm not particularly religious. Um, but your, your, ma- your wife and children are Jewish. Yes, I married into the tribe. I, I joke with everyone that I wasn't lucky enough to be born into the tribe, so I did the next best thing uh, and married into it. And um, in fact, I told my wife on our first date uh, that we could raise our kids Jewish. So wow. um, one, I suppose I had a good feeling about her and our relationship. Uh, yeah. and, and two, I had enough Jewish friends that I knew it could be an issue, so I wanted to get the issue out of the way up front um, <laughs> as, as we began dating. Um, and but, here you are uh, 27 years later. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've been dating almost exactly 30 years, wow. uh, co- just coming up in a couple of months. Um, yeah, Bill Ackman and I crashed the Harvard Law School orientation booze cruise of Boston Harbor uh, in September uh, 1990. And um, Susan and Bill went to the same synagogue in Westchester growing up, and she recognized him and came up and started talking to him. And um, I elbowed my way into the conversation, and wow. the rest is history. We like to Amazing. joke that that we like to joke that she married the wrong hedgy, um, <laughs> <laughs> given how successful Bill has been. But uh, uh, we're all still close friends to this day. Terrific. So um, the passage that we're going to talk about is from um, Leviticus. 1916. And the reason why that is so apt is because you lived it this year, 2020, you lived the passage. So let me just read the passage and then we can discuss it and how you actually lived it. The passage is, it's like so many things in the Bible. It was a revolutionary idea that is now completely familiar to us. It says, you shall not stand aside while your fellow's blood is shed or otherwise translated as you shall not stand idly by the blood of your neighbor. I am Hashem. So when he says, I am Hashem, he's saying, I am telling you this with the full authority of God. I am reminding you who's telling you this. God is telling you this. You are not to stand aside uh, when your fellow's blood is shed. Now, Whitney, why don't you tell everyone why this is so relevant to you in 2020? Yeah, well, I would actually say it's probably been relevant to me for most of my life. Um, it's, a, it's a great passage and yet another way in which um, I feel an incredibly strong affinity to the Jewish religion, um, even though I wasn't raised in it. I've been a member of Central Synagogue now for 20 years or so um, and been very involved there. But uh, this year, um, during the worst of the coronavirus crisis here in New York City, a group called Samaritan's Purse, an evangelical Christian organization, actually, uh, built a field hospital directly across the street in Central Park uh, from where I live. And uh, one of my friends was volunteering over there on the very first day as they started to erect the field hospital. And he said, hey, why don't you come on over and help, you know, put up some of the tents and help out? 
And that began a couple months journey of, you know, spending eight to 12 hours a day over there doing, uh, you know, a dozen different things uh, every day, trying to help get the field hospital initially set up and open so that it could treat the overflow patients, mostly coming from across the street at Mount Sinai Hospital, you know, doing everything I could to try and support uh, the nurses and doctors who had come in from all over the country uh, to treat the hundreds of, of coronavirus patients that were flooding our hospitals at the time. So, it was, um, you know, it was very rewarding, very fulfilling, um, very eye-opening experience. Uh, you know, I'd never worked in a hospital before, and it felt like I'd been cooped up in my apartment 24-7 for a, a month before the hospital came and opened. And it felt good to, to try and make a difference and help uh, my, my city address this terrible pandemic that killed more than 20,000 fellow New Yorkers. So, uh, Whitney, when you talk about uh, helping out at the hospital Samaritan's Purse, um, I, I know what really happened because I got a call in March from our uh, now mutual friend, Ken Isaacs, who's the head of international programs for Samaritan's Purse and had set up the hospital like he had set up so many similar facilities around the world for coronavirus, among many other things over the past 30 years. And Ken calls me and he says, do you know Whitney Tilson? And I said, of course I do. And he said, well, Whitney Tilson basically came out of nowhere and he described what you were doing. It was genuine construction work in building the hospital, building the infrastructure to enable the hospital. And also, Ken told me, Whitney has recruited this enormous cohort of volunteers who are assisting him in building the hospital and the infrastructure. And through your efforts and those of the volunteers that you recruited, you were able to help Samaritan's Purse see all kinds of patients who otherwise would have had no place to go in their most vulnerable moment. Yeah, um, I think Ken is being very kind. Um, you know, most of what I was doing was sort of brute labor. Um, you know, uh, they were bringing in dump truck loads full of mulch, for example, uh, to lay out pathways because it was rainy weather and the the field. So they were just out in a field in Central Park. It was turning into a mud pit. So I recruited a dozen of my friends, and um, it was sort of funny. I went and pulled sleds, the plastic sleds that my daughters used to ride down literally on the very hill there in Central Park where the, where the hospital was located. They had been collecting dust in the basement of my building. And so, you know, I brought over a bunch of sleds from the building and we used the sleds to haul mulch and lay out pathways. But, you know, one of my friends was, was handy as a plumber. And so he helped set up the water system for the hospital. But it was mostly, uh, you know, sort of manual labor. But then I realized um, that they were hungry. The doctors and nurses were hungry between shifts. So I grabbed my car, drove up to Costco and bought $2,000 worth of snacks and drinks. And I probably did that a dozen times over the two months they were there just to uh, keep the, I figured the very least uh, I could do for these doctors and nurses who were saving the lives of my fellow New Yorkers is, is I could keep them well fed. Uh, so, um, you know, I got a lot of appreciation for that. Um, you know, many of the, many of the Samaritan's Purse people had served in places like Liberia, 
where they were on sort of starvation rations. And here I was uh, bringing them sugar buns and uh, Pringles chips and uh, Starbucks, uh, you know, uh, bottled lattes, um, you know, from Costco. So, uh, you know, it was, it, it, you know, it felt good and uh, to support their work and even little things like, for example, that some of the people were there for six weeks and had no way to get mail. Because uh, because they were living in hotels, and so I gave everybody my home address, and I became wow. the mail depot for oh, for the two hundred people at the <laughs> hospital. You know, because they would just send it. You know, uh, Ken Isaac's care of Whitney Tilson at my address, and so every day packages and letters would arrive, and I would you know run them over and deliver mail to the hospital. So. You know, ranging from little things to bigger things. Uh, Basically, everything. I just tried. Yeah, you know, they were they they all showed up in sneakers, and the weather was cold and wet, and they were uh, they all had wet feet. So I sent around an email to all my friends saying, "Donate your waterproof boots and wool socks." And you know, I delivered a few dozen pairs of sh- shoes and boots um, so that they would at least have dry feet. You know, and anything I saw that they needed. You know, so that they could focus on their good work and and not have to have cold feet or, or empty bellies. You know, I tried to address. Getting back to the biblical passage, which I think you lived it. And the whole point of the Torah, the Torah is not a history book or a law book or a cookbook. It's a guidebook, a, a guide to how we should live our lives. And you lived this passage. You live across the street from the hospital where you did all the work you described. How many people do you think passed by the hospital and stood idly by or just kept walking yeah or or, or there were even picketers and protesters at, at one point um you know because of their disagreements with evangelical christians over political issues which i i i by the way disagree with them on things like gay rights and so forth but it, that you know we put our differences aside to save lives uh in, in the short term you know you know, I, I, I think, look, my, my parents uh, were among the first couples to meet and marry in the Peace Corps in 1962. They were married in the Philippines. Um, and at the age of 20 and 21, my dad hadn't even finished college at the time. So my parents, I grew up in, I spent more than half my childhood in Tanzania and in Nicaragua. And my parents have retired in Kenya. My sister works over there as well, um, you know, doing good in the world. Um, you know, my, my dad's specialty is educational projects in third world countries. And my sister's specialty is maternal health projects in third world countries. So, you know, from a very young age, this passage um, that uh, from Leviticus, but also the general concept of tikkun olam, has been instilled in me, but just not as a religious thing or from the Torah, but just because, you know, I suppose my parents may have been inspired by Kennedy and asked not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, that kind of thing. You know, I still remember the lecture my mom gave me in high school and said, you know, Whitney, you've been born in the United States to two wonderful parents who've given you everything. You've had every opportunity in life. You're going off to Harvard you're the luckiest guy ever to walk the face of the earth. And if you take that good fortune that you didn't do anything to deserve, you were just born into it. If you take that good fortune and squander it by just pursuing you know, your own gratification and just getting rich, then I will view myself as a mother, as a failure. Um, wow. you, know, you have a duty to take your good fortune and make the world a better place and to help others. And so, you know, coming out of college, 
my first opportunity to do so was I knew Wendy Kopp's younger brother, and he introduced me to her. And at that point, her idea for Teach for America was her senior thesis. The organization didn't even exist. But he put us in touch, and Wendy was determined to convert her thesis into an organization. And so I went down to New York and spent, you know, it was only six months, but that really is what started, you know, my journey of being involved with so many different nonprofit organizations and different efforts, you know, focused mostly on education reform in the United States but also a lot of work with various charities and hospitals and scholarship programs in Africa because my parents and my sister have lived over there for the last 25 years. Yeah, so you're very well known um, in New York and nationally for your investment work and also for your nonprofit work, particularly around education reform, which is why it's so interesting that this field hospital is set up across the street from where you live. And we could presume that tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people physically passed it by, heard, heard about it, stood idly by. Some, as you said, criticized, but you went there and worked for months. And when you recruited others, when you recruited others to, in effect, not stand idly by, was it hard to convince others or were people able and willing to, to he- heed your call? Yeah, um, I have big email lists. So even a relatively small response rate generated lots of volunteers for the hospital. Um, and at one point, you know, we probably had a couple dozen people working, though the need for volunteers diminished fairly quickly once the hospital was up and running. So, you know, I'm really proud of my friends and my fellow New Yorkers. At one point, I put together a list when it looked like we might need lots of volunteers. I probably had 150 people who put their name into a Google spreadsheet saying, hey, let me know about volunteer opportunities. And I sort of regret that I wasn't able to put more of them to work. But, you know, there were there ended up being a core of a of a handful of us that really did quite a bit of work. And it turned out we really didn't need that many more people. Well, but what's interesting is that perhaps it's when it says um, you shall not stand idly by the blood of your fellow, that it's really helped by leadership. That if a leader like you steps up and says, I'm not going to stand idly by whatever it is, in this case, it was a field hospital. Lots of people are able and willing and desirous of heeding that commandment and following that call. They just have to be given the opportunity to do so. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, I'm sort of naturally an organizer and I, and I've always sort of built big email lists of, uh, on various topics of interest, you know, ranging from, you know, what's just personal stuff to adventure sports, to political matters, to education reform, to investing. And so I guess I was in a little bit of a unique position, you know, once I sort of got got inspired by what they were doing at the hospital and saw the opportunity to help out that I was able to draw in a bunch more people just by sending out an email to a few hundred or in some cases, a few thousand people. Now, I've noticed also in your um, basically public media that you had political and religious disagreements with the people at Samaritan's Purse, but you immediately put that aside and said, let's focus on what we all agree on, which is that saving lives is a sacred obligation and we can work together to do it. And in so doing, you seem to have made some deep and deeply sustaining friendships. Yes. You know, there was a little bit of cognitive dissonance, uh, I, I must admit. Um, you know, honestly, I didn't know any evangelical Christians uh, prior to getting involved with the hospital. Um, 
And it's very funny. Some of them say, you know, I've never met a liberal. Um, <laughs> you know, they didn't certainly didn't know any people from, you know, from from New York City before many of them uh, came up. I mean, the evangelical Christians and and in fact, this organization, Samaritan's Purse, is headquartered down in North Carolina. And so uh, it was people coming in from all over the country, but not very many from the New York area or the Northeast. Um it was interesting. The head of the organization, Franklin Graham, is one of the best-known evangelicals, and he said some pretty terrible things about gay folks and gay rights and uh, that I strongly disagree with. But, you know, I found that a lot of his followers had the same view I had, which is, I, I wish he'd just be quiet, uh, because he's undermining the great work that Samaritan's Purse is doing by just wading into the culture wars like this in a totally unnecessary way. Because Samaritan's work does, uh, Samaritan's purse does great work all over the world, but because of um, some of the terrible things Franklin Graham has said uh, about gays, it's a controversial organization, and it pains it pained me, and it made it difficult for me to work with them. Uh, some of my friends, you know, said, "Whitney, what are you doing working with, you know, supporting this organization which is anti-gay rights?" Uh, and I said, basically, look, people are dying right now, and these guys are saving lives, and so I'm going to put aside my political and, and differences with them. But, you know, as soon as the crisis passed, you know, a lot of people were like, okay, you know, get lost, uh, Samaritan's Purse. Very ungracious, in my opinion. But, you know, someday I hope, uh, I, I certainly, I have an open invitation to go down to their headquarters in North Carolina, and, and maybe now that at least the crisis seems to have passed here in New York, you know, maybe I can. Uh, we can have a frank conversation about uh, about these bigger issues. Um, so, t- talk a little about the friendships you made, because uh, I think it's very interesting and instructive that some of the best friendships can be made by people who work together to do things that they both agree are sacred, even if they come to the sacred nature of the thing from different perspectives. I mean, I noticed that you were traveling. Where was it? California or somewhere out west? Right. You, you were staying at the home of. Either someone you met or someone you met through someone you met at Samaritan's Purse. Yes, I, uh, I was. I was actually out. Um, I spent three and a half weeks out in Yosemite National Park in California uh, just uh, for most of June. And uh, I stayed in the, the lovely house in the park owned by Friends of Samaritan's Purse, um, who actually were not at the hospital, but they heard about my good work there and offered to let me stay in their lovely home for 10 days or so. Um, and that that was very kind. And in fact, I have offers from uh, either some of the people I met or, or just friends of Samaritan's Purse who I met via email to go stay in various places in the United States, as well as a beautiful chalet in France. Um, so, um, and, and by the way, a house down in Antigua, which is where my wife and I honeymooned down in the Caribbean. Um, so yeah, I made some great friendships and, uh, you know, every person I met was just so, uh, I mean, they're not paid very much. They're, they're picking, they're uprooting themselves. They're coming to New York to help. They just paid a uh, per diem. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, 100 to 150 bucks a day or something for very skilled uh, doctors and nurses. Um, so they're certainly not doing it for the money. They're they're doing it because they believe in the same things I believe in, in terms of helping your fellow man during times of need. And, you know, they were doing far more than I was in that they were leaving their families, coming to a strange new city, um, were being exposed to people with a virus, literally putting their lives on the line. 
And so not surprisingly, you know, uh, even though we come from totally different parts of the country, totally different politics, totally different religions, I felt like I was bonded and connected with virtually everyone I met there and made some great relationships that I think will prove enduring. You know, people I, I, I still keep in touch with, even though they're long gone. Beautiful. And, and of course, they do it for the same reasons that you do, but also they do it because they're men and women of deep Christian faith, and they believe it's their calling to take the gifts that God had given them and to go serve those in need, which was New Yorkers in March. And you do it from a more secular perspective, but in both cases, you refuse to stand idly by the blood of your neighbor. Exactly. Exactly. Now, when we started emailing about you coming on the podcast, your initial response is very interesting. You said, uh, I haven't read the Bible. So that was very interesting to me. And I wanted to kind of explore why you haven't. So you went to Harvard and Harvard Business School, where you were a Baker scholar. You're an extraordinarily accomplished and curious intellectual who reads everything, who comments so intelligently and originally on subjects ranging from politics to medicine to data to, of course, business and finance. You have an insatiable intellectual appetite. You're one of the most interesting people in the world. And yet you said you've never read the Bible. Why? You know, it's a good question. Um, I, I did read some uh, in high school. I took a, uh, there was a required class on religion. I went to Northfield Mount Hermon School, which is founded by Dwight Lyman Moody, a famous evangelist back in the 1800s. And so there's still, it's not a religious high school, but there there was, you know, the legacy from 100 years earlier was that there is a religion requirement. So um, I, I, I wouldn't, uh, say I'm completely ignorant of the Bible, and I've been going to services periodically uh, with my wife and daughters. Um, you know, all of whom went through uh, religious school, became bat, uh, bat mitzvah, um, and confirmation at Central. Um, so I've been very supportive of their religious upbringing. You know, within the Reform, not not super conservative or orthodox. It's a Reform congregation, but. You know, I guess I guess I don't really have a great answer for you because the Bible, even if you're not religious, is a great historical book and has certainly been the most important book in history, uh, you know, in terms of influencing the course of human events, right? Well, exactly. Right. So maybe maybe your question has inspired me and in that I should uh, do, some, do some more reading of it and become more familiar with it. Well, yeah, it's just interesting to me that um, because what you said is exactly right, that it is by far the most important book ever written. I think the best book ever written as a guidebook to how to live our lives. And the passage we talked about today is just one example, but the whole Bible from Genesis to Deuteronomy is full of guidance that can steer us in our daily lives. And for some reason, I can't understand it has not captivated the imagination or the attention of people who are not, who wouldn't call themselves religious, when in fact, it's just great, literature, guidance. It's the first self-help book. It's kind of everything's there. And uh, I mean, talk about the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King, one cannot understand Martin Luther King without the Exodus because he was quite consciously living the Moses story in his day, among many other examples of how important the Bible is. And it's yet so important, I think, so underrated. I agree. Um, and and look, I've, um, I have a friend, uh, one of my closest friends from college, Linda Rotenberg, who uh, you may know, um, is married to a guy named Bruce Feiler, who wrote the book. He wrote a beautiful book on the Exodus. Exactly. He wrote a book called Abraham. He wrote a book called Walking the Bible um, and has made 
studying the Bible and the history associated with it, um, you know, in a very approachable way. So, so that's, that's sort of another way to access it. So I've, I've read his books, um, over the years. So, um, let let me conclude um, by taking this in a slightly different direction towards, um, Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir, where he says, um, he had just run into, um, a man with whom he had served in the war. And he said, this man had, uh, saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. And he said to the man, um, in all your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about humankind? And the priest said, I've learned two things. One, everyone is much less happy than they seem. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Whitney, in your 25 years in the investment business and as a leader in the nonprofit world, uh, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? That is interesting. Something about, uh, I guess I would say something about a steep learning curve. Um, Mm. You know, I went to Harvard and then Harvard Business School and graduated with high honors from both. And, you know, I look back, though, and I do not consider myself today. Back then, I did not. uh, I now realize that I was not a good learner. It was sort of a game to me to figure out how little work I could do and still get an A in a class. Mm. Right. And. Whereas, and then I got exposed to Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and the concept of being a lifelong learner and getting on a steep learning curve and really soaking up knowledge in as broad array as possible. I mean, that was another aspect of it. Whereas, you know, I studied what was in my classes and I studied what was necessary to get a good grade, but I didn't then you know, seek to learn beyond what was required to get a good grade, right? It was all just about getting good grades and doing well academically and getting into the next school or something like that. I was given the most incredible educational opportunities in the world, yet I don't feel like I fully took advantage of them. And that's, you know, it's not taking advantage of going to Harvard and Harvard Business School and having only a a stunted education, despite the incredible opportunities at those institutions is, uh, you know, I wouldn't quite say it's a crime, but it was a wasted opportunity. I, that's such an interesting insight. And I, I think one can't blame a child too much, right? So when you're 18, you're effectively a child legally, maybe not, but effectively a child. And I, and I think what you point out is the responsibility of the institutions, which are an embodiment, of course, of adulthood to really direct young men and young women and say, here's what an educated person should know. And here's how hard an educated person needs to work to know the things that they need to know. That certainly wasn't provided when I was in school and you and I were in generally the same era. And it's probably gotten even worse now. Yeah, I mean, I I, I won't blame anybody but myself. Um, I remember my mom um, subscribed on my behalf to The New York Times when I was in college and had it delivered to my doorstep. And I was so idiotic that I barely read it. And, you know, but, but it, it finally over the years sunk in right now to the, you know, wall street journal, Washington post and New York times are probably the three main publications I read every day. Me too. Um, I, I would give my right arm uh, before I'd give up any of those three. Right. In other words, it's so, they're so fundamental to just being an informed and educated person. And I didn't understand that when I was younger. So, uh, you know, the first 25 years of my life or so, maybe I only took advantage of 50% of the opportunities out there. So I always encourage young people whenever I speak to them and, you know, encourage my own children to just read broadly, um, read 
regular newspapers, you know, don't go down the rabbit hole with the internet today where you can just read very narrow slanted stuff, right? You know, read broadly and try and understand, you know, history, sociology, philosophy, art, uh, not just what you're interested in, which might be business and politics, you know, in my case, right? So I guess that would be just sort of general lesson number one. And, and I, general, I, think, I think that's a great lesson because a young person, by definition, they haven't had much experience. So they may think they know what they're interested in, but they don't know what they might be interested in because they haven't been exposed to that much. That's right. That's right. And I wish I'd taken a broader range of courses undergrad, and I just wish I'd read more broadly. And instead of doing the bare minimum of reading for my classes required to get a good grade, I wish I'd not only done the reading that was assigned, but then, you know, did more on my own, right? Right. Now I'm sort of a reading machine, uh, and that's what I spend 12 hours a day doing. And I still can't even keep up with everything I want to read, right? I, I just have so many interests and and I love diving in and learning. So, so working at the hospital, for example, sort of tying that in to being across the street, the work I was doing there, I learned a lot about medicine and, and treating people and so forth. But I also learned a lot about um, an entire religion that I knew absolutely nothing about other than, you know, terrible stereotypes of redneck, Bible-thumping, Trump-loving, gay haters, right? Which is a, which is a terrible stereotype, right? Right. right. Uh, and and I, by the way, they, they, they had some terrible stereotypes about the, the Volvo-driving, latte-sipping, uh, hmm. you know, flag-burning libtards uh, of, of, <laughs> of New York City, right? So that would be sort of general lesson number one. But you asked for two things. Right. Um, and I'm actually writing a book called The Art of Playing Defense that I hope to have wow. out maybe later this year. But it's a, it's a general concept um, that, that, again, I, I, something I picked up from Buffett, but particularly Charlie Munger, his, his, his right-hand guy, about, um, you know, they say in basketball, defense wins championships, right? It's not the team with the best scorer, but the team that pay, plays collectively the best defense. And, you know, I've now reached age 53 and I've seen a lot of people suffer a lot of setbacks um, from divorce to cancer to losing their job and their career. And a lot of it sort of happens to people. They don't do anything wrong, but a lot of it is sort of self-inflicted. Um, and I see people suffering a lot of calamities that set them back. And I think, again, it's a very unusual way to think because most people are always thinking about how to get the next promotion, how to take the next step forward in life. And they sort of see life as a straight line upward progression, right? And so they're very focused on what do I need to do to uh, achieve the next level? And very few people say, what do I need to do to avoid falling down and going back to go? Uh, what a fascinating insight, because on the other hand, you do want to encourage people to be risk takers. Yes. Which is which is an offensive idea. Yes. And look, you know, you're talking to a guy who just got back from climbing the nose of El Capitan, which is not a risk free activity. <laughs> and right? starting and starting your own business two years ago. Um, and I've started multiple uh, right. businesses. I've been an entrepreneur basically for pretty much all 30 years uh, since right. I graduated. So you, you take plenty of risk. Exactly. But. It's okay to take risk, but you want to be, you want to have a mental framework 
that is focused on avoiding, to the extent possible, the big calamities that can really set you back. You know, the single biggest calamity is getting yourself killed, of course, or suffering. You or a loved one suffering death or some terrible, debilitating illness, right? Now, you might think, okay, well, there's some randomness. I mean, I'm sure you know, as as I know, people who, you know, never smoked or anything and got stricken with some sort of terrible cancer or something like that, right? Or they just got hit driving their car along the road, uh, you know, by a drunk driver, didn't do anything wrong, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I see people suffer, you know, a health issue or get themselves killed, I'd say 80% of the time they were being idiots, right? The people who get lung cancer were probably mostly smokers or using tobacco, right? Right. People who don't, um, you know, getting regular cancer screening, getting a colonoscopy for me last year was no fun at all, but colon cancer is the fourth biggest cancer killer or fourth biggest killer overall. Yeah. It's really, the colonoscopy is really not that big a deal. I got one two years ago. Exactly. Um, uh, But most people don't get it. And by the time uh, there's blood in their stool, it's stage four and they've got a year to live. Um, You know, my cousin put off getting a simple mammogram. And when she finally did, um, she had aggressive breast cancer. But thank goodness, had she waited another six months, she'd be dead now. Now, this is interesting. So um, so you're writing a book on this and I can't wait to read it. And the examples you used lead me to ask this. Why don't people play this kind of defense? Because like the kind of defense you're talking about is not inconsistent with, with being a risk taker. So why don't people who are now the the advised age is 45, why don't 45 to 50 year olds, and certainly older, get the colonoscopy every 10 years, or every five years, whatever the doctor says, it's different in every case. I think there's, depending on what kind of thing you're talking about, what kind of calamity you're trying to avoid and what steps, um, maybe there's some expense associated with it. For example, another way, you know, 40,000 people almost every year die in car crashes every year. And I know wealthy people who are driving unsafe cars because, you know, they're too cheap to buy a new car with the latest safety features. Well, my wife fell asleep at the wheel two years ago and ran off the road. And could have died. And thank goodness I overcame being an idiot cheapskate and had bought a brand new car, uh, you know, less than a year earlier, precisely because in this era of distracted driving where people have their phones up on their windshield and they're playing Spotify and text messages are coming in or they're just looking at Google Maps, right? Right. There's this terrible epidemic of distracted driving out there that you know, got me worried about, you know what, I want to have my family in the very safest car. So, but that costs money, right? So sometimes it's money. You play defense and you block the shot. That's right. Um, So for example, when I was out there climbing in Yosemite, I was climbing routes that people die on, right? But, uh, um, oh, for sure. I mean, people die every year, uh, plenty of people die every year climbing in Yosemite. You know, these are these are roots where you're a thousand feet off the ground, you know, hanging on a rope. Right. But what do I do is I pay a lot of money to be um, tied to a professional IMGA certified, the highest level certified guide. Right. So, you know, there are ways to throw money at dangerous activities that can make them less dangerous. Um you know, so I've done a lot of climbing the last five years. You know, I've climbed things like the Matterhorn and the Eiger and the Alps um, and, you know, just did three and a half weeks of climbing in Yosemite. Every single second that I was up off the ground, I was tied to a professional, a very high level professional, right? 
So some of it's being willing to spend some money. Some of it's being willing to um, suffer some discomfort and inconvenience, like getting a, a colonoscopy or a mammogram. So that's all calamity number one. The second biggest calamity I see upsetting people's lives is being trapped in a bad marriage, often ending in divorce. Now, what's interesting is, is the original title of the chapter was divorce. That was the calamity. But my wife pointed out that no, it's not the divorce. Often that's the relief valve. Happiness goes up after the divorce. It's the 10 years prior to the divorce where you're miserable and you've wasted 10 years of your life. That's the calamity. That's right. That reminds me of uh, Rabbi Manus Friedman um, had a, a couple come to him talking about their terrible marital, marital problems. And they said, should we get divorced? And he said, you're actually divorced already. The question is, should you get remarried? Mm, mm, but that's interesting. That's exactly what Susan was saying, right? It's that it's that it's not like everything's going great. Then you get divorced. It's the years of pain and suffering and arguing and tension that end yes. the divorce, which is a relief valve. That's right. So how does your concept of defense apply to divorce? Well, interestingly, um, avoiding the calamity of being trapped in a bad marriage that usually ends in divorce, right? There's a function of two things, which is number one, marrying the right person. And then number two, assuming you do marry a good person and all, not letting your marriage go south, right? And so that's how my chapter is split into those two things. So I have the 12 questions to ask before you marry someone. That, you know, is really sort of a collection of maybe 50 questions that I've grouped into 12 different categories, right? And, you know, I get a lot of interesting feedback whenever I read the 12 questions to people. Um, it really gets them thinking. I'm sure. But I know plenty of people who've gotten divorced who said, gosh, I wish I'd, uh, I wish I'd read those 12 questions. I wish I'd seen those 12 questions before I decided to, you know, get married to this person because, they would not have scored very high, right? All right, but 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 once once someone gets married, they're married. Mm -hmm. Now, I thought it was so interesting and important what you said that you identify the potential catastrophes in whatever you're doing. If it's your health, it might be cancer. Yes. If it's a physical activity, it might be an unsafe car. It might be not tying yourself properly when you're climbing. The potential catastrophe in a relationship is the divorce. But as Susan said, it's really the pain leading into the divorce. How do you play defense against that? Well, I would say that of the marriages and, you know, my sample size is maybe 15 people, friends and uh, close friends and relatives of mine who've gone through divorce in the last five years or so. And I'd say in two thirds of the cases, they had good marriages. They, they, they married well and they were happy for the first five years. And then on a scale of one to 10, a marriage, which was between an eight and a 10, let's say anything right. above an eight is very healthy, right? Sure. It slipped to a seven, and then it slipped to a six, and then a five, four, three, two, boom, over the course of many years. In other words, they didn't end suddenly. They ended gradually. Wow. So the obvious, the obvious things to avoid the sudden end of your marriage are things like just don't go flirting and uh, yeah, don't, you know, don't, don't, do, don't, do don't do stupid, don't do stupid things in Vegas, uh, right. you know, but, but that isn't how, that isn't how, you know, the, the whole thing, the, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas is completely untrue. Okay. Exactly. Um, but that isn't how the marriage ended. They ended slowly and painfully, very gradually. And so how do you avoid that? Well, the answer is, is here's, what's very interesting is, my observation is, is that people treat their spouses worse than they would ever treat most of their friends. And why is that? 
And the answer is, is because your spouse, you, you treat your friends badly. They won't be your friends for very much longer, right? It's very, you know, they can just walk away and disengage from you, right? Whereas you can treat your spouse real badly for years and years, and they're not going to walk away, right? In other words, because you can get away with it, you know, people behave badly. And it's the little things I often find. It's just not being a good listener and being empathetic. It's not looking for things to do together. It's leaving the toilet seat up. It's stealing the covers at night. Uh, it's leaving your dirty clothes around. Um, you know, you it's, know it's, it's, it's probably also not saying positive things. Because, you know, one of the things that Jewish teaching is so insistent on is that is the importance of words. And we know that Lashon Harag, which actually is not about, it's gossip, but it's actually about the truth. It's prohibited. You can't even say the truth about somebody else for a variety of reasons because it will end negative. But if we know that negative words are important, then words must be important, which means positive words must be important. So it's the daily affirmations. Yes. It's the praise. It's the telling your spouse how wonderful they are, how beautiful they are, how important they are. That can probably help sustain a marriage and prevent the catastrophe. Yeah, there's, there's been some interesting research on what they call micro interactions. It's just the you're sitting there at the table and you're both reading the newspaper and one of you says, oh, you know, did you see Gail Collins uh, op-ed today? You know, it's really interesting. And then the other person says, oh, no, what does she say? Um, you know, uh, le uh, I can't wait to read it after you're finished, right? Like that's a positive micro interaction. Hmm. Whereas the other person might say, you know, hey, uh, you know, don't bother me. I'm, I'm reading that something really interesting right now. Right. In other words, like shuts down the other person um, and responds negatively. See what I'm saying? Absolutely. Like, well, because it sends a message a, that, that what you're saying is not important, which is that at some level you're not important or I don't have enough respect for you to even read a column that you're suggesting I would enjoy your benefit from. Right. So it's. Um, any couple, um, and this is true whether it, with with spouses, of course, but if you have children living in your house or you know anyone you're regularly interacting with, you have you can have dozens of these micro interactions every day. So sometimes um, uh, marriages go through their ups and downs. Every marriage does, um, and. I'd be shocked if there's been ever been a marriage that at some point didn't drop to, let's say, a six out of 10, which is not a healthy level, but it's not uh, about to get divorce level, right? The key, though, is, is if you, and, and, and it can happen due to external pressures, uh, the illness or death of one of your parents, one of you loses your job or is in a career transition, you've got some issue with one of your children, right? So for whatever reason, though, if your marriage has dropped from the healthy eight to 10 range down to a six, that's the critical inflection point, which is, do you recognize it together? And do you communicate and say, okay, you know, how can we together get our marriage back to at least an eight, uh, eight plus back mm. to the healthy point? So that's in virtually all the divorces I've seen. There was a point at which they might have been saved, but neither person acknowledged it. They didn't communicate it about, about it, and they didn't take steps to get it back upward into a healthy place. So instead, when they went from an eight to a six, instead of bouncing back to a seven and an eight, they instead went to a five, to a four, and they got in this vicious cycle that spiraled downward. Is it because they didn't know they were at a six? or they didn't believe they could get back up to an eight, or because they didn't care they were at a six? I think it's probably more 
like the old parable about the frog and the water. And if you boil it very, very slowly, the frog doesn't jump out. Uh. This, this happens over years and it's the accumulation of small things. And those micro interactions go from three or four to one positive to negative to two to one to one to one. And then from one to two and one to three, and this happens over five or 10 years and so it can happen very gradually. And look, let's be honest, men and women generally don't communicate very well in general, right? Um, right. And you'd think, well, husband and wives, well, surely they communicate well. Eh, nah, not so much. I mean, some of my friends have literally been blindsided by having their wife come home and be like, you know, I'm done. I'm out of here. Wow. This marriage is over, right? Blindsided. You know, I wouldn't say that that's particularly common. In most cases, you know, both parties, both sides have been feeling general unhappiness, but for whatever reason, weren't able to express it and, and communicate and make the effort. You know, it's just so easy to get to become lazy and sloppy. And but it's also, from bad. what you're saying, it's also so easy to improve. You know, another, one of the things that we learn in Jewish teaching is that we are a function of our actions and we can control our actions. So if one knows that my marriage will be significantly improved. My chance of marital happiness will go way up. My chance of divorce will go way down if I do three more positive uh, micro interactions a day, which is totally doable. Their marriage will probably work out. Yeah. Again, I, I hate to keep going back to Warren Buffett, but he's made such a big impact on my life, not just as an investor, but with just wisdom. I, I remember very early on, he said, the chains of habit are too light to be felt until they are too heavy to be broken. And I really have thought about that. But if you think about it, it's not like the big things like, hey, let's, uh, you know, my marriage is in trouble. So let's go on a big vacation down to the Caribbean or, right, or, or, or even, you know, let's do a date night every Thursday night as, as important as uh, that's a good idea. Both those are good ideas, right? Sure. But it's the habits. It's the just the day-to-day behavior. But we can change our habits. Yes. It's very hard, though, as Buffett points out. Well, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the Kutzker Rebbe, the great, the great Kutzker Rebbe, he would say to his students, um, how far is it from east to west? And they would say, oh, well, you know, so many miles. He'd say, no, 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 it's one step. Yeah, yeah. So these changes actually aren't that hard. I mean, to take your example, which is a great one. Like, I don't know, like imagine you're counseling a young couple as they get married. You say... You know, one thing from what you're saying that a marriage counselor or a rabbi or a, a, a pastor or a priest should say to the couple is, or friend, whatever, uh, every day think of three positive things to say to the other person. Regardless of what else is going on, think of three positive things. I don't care how small they are. Yeah. But also every day, every time your partner communicates with you, respond in a positive way. Absolutely. Um, pay, pay attention. Very important. And respond and engage as opposed to cutting them off, right? You know, if you know that it bugs your partner, uh, that, that you, if you're messy and your partner's sort of more on the neat side, um, then, then get in the habit of just picking up after yourself a little bit as opposed to leaving your crap for your partner to clean up, right? Absolutely. Those just the, the little habits and, and, you know, on the surface, it seems so easy. But think about think about the habits of, you know, do you exercise regularly? Do you eat in a healthy way or do you overeat, right? On the one hand, it seems intellectually very easy to change those habits. But I don't know very many people who after the age of 30 or certainly after the age of 40 
really fundamentally change their fundamental habits of how they behave toward other people, how they, you know, their, their, their day-to-day habits, most people end up, you know, the habits they, they set as a young person end up being lifelong habits. And it shouldn't be that way, but it is that way for most people. But I do think it's possible to, if, if, if you're really cognizant about it, and hopefully my book can inspire some people to Absolutely. take a good look in the mirror in the same way that it's inspired me to look in a mirror and try and improve my day-to-day behaviors and habits. Well, it sounds like a fascinating book. I can't wait to read it. It's coming up at the end of the year. Yeah. Um, if, if you're willing, I'll send you a, an early draft and uh, I'd love your feedback. On oh, it. thank you. I would, good, I would love good. to. Um, yeah. Is it available for pre-order now or not yet? No, um, I'm still having the, the, the key person to read it is my wife and she's promises to, to take, to read the, you know, 99 page draft. I, you know, it's a Microsoft word document. Right oh, I'd now. Love to, yeah. Please send it to me uh, as well. I'd love to read it. And, uh, yeah. and, uh, we'll have to have a, do another podcast on it when it comes out. It sounds fascinating. What an, what an important subject and such interesting ideas in it. Well, Whitney, thank you as ever for such a fascinating conversation and for, um, being such an inspiring person for for so many, which the world witnessed uh, this spring, but so many of us have known so well long before. Uh, you're very kind, and uh, it was a real pleasure speaking with you. Me too. So, uh, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.